No balloon drops, no funny hats, no spontaneous conga lines snaking through a packed convention floor. Instead, this week, a choreographed Zoom handoff will be how Democrats officially nominate Joe Biden to be their presidential candidate. Let it suffice to say this is a long way from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a place Democrats thought they'd be celebrating the 2020 Democratic National Convention just a few months ago a location journalist Dan Kaufman says was picked for a very specific reason. Obviously holding the convention there was um, a symbol that the Democratic Party was trying to atone for uh, its sin of ignoring Wisconsin in 2016. Dan Kaufman is a native Wisconsinite and has written at length about Wisconsin politics for The New Yorker and in his book, The Fall of Wisconsin. Hillary Clinton was the first candidate of either party to not campaign in Wisconsin during the general election since Richard Nixon in 1972. When you say didn't campaign, Dan, the Democratic nominee for president didn't set foot in the state of Wisconsin? Not during the general election, no. No, not once. Dan traveled to Wisconsin over the last year to talk to the people who helped Donald Trump win the state that calls itself America's Dairyland by a whisker in 2016. Trump won Wisconsin by about 23,000 votes that year. So I think there was a recognition that they needed to pay attention to not just Wisconsin, but the, uh, the Rust Belt states in general. You know, Wisconsin had not voted for a Republican for president Uh, Since 1984, Ronald Reagan's 49-state triumph. During his travels, Dan spent a lot of time in what's called the Driftless Area, the rural southwestern part of Wisconsin, home to family farms and tragedy. Wisconsin led the country in family farm bankruptcies for the past three years. Wow. That has led to really significant and serious social costs, including, most importantly, the dramatic rise in suicides that uh, Wisconsin had a statewide record of suicides in 2017. And a lot of this was tied to the family farm crisis. This driftless region voted overwhelmingly for Barack Obama in 2008, but came out strongly for Donald Trump just eight years later. Today on the show, how the Democrats lost Wisconsin's dairy farmers, and why four years later their discontent could end up costing Trump the presidency. I'm Ray Suarez, subbing for Mary Harris, and you're listening to What Next? Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. To understand the political earthquake that shook the Driftless area back in 2016, 
you first need to look at how agriculture in America has changed in recent decades. I think there's a lot of frustration with both parties who have presided over a real, um, there's been a real erosion of rural America, particularly since the early 1970s, when a man named Earl Butts, Richard Nixon's um, Secretary of Agriculture, really started changing agricultural policy in a profound way. Um, he basically encouraged consolidation of farms. And he said, in fact, that um, uh, basically to get, go get big or get out. And he encouraged farmers to adapt or die. This was, these were his words. And he wanted, he didn't see much room for the small agrarian farmer, the small family farmer. And that has happened. Um, and both parties have encouraged it to various degrees. And I think this anger uh, sometimes doesn't know how to be channeled. There's still a lot of support for Trump in these rural areas, but it's also eroded to a significant degree. And I think the driftless area will be key as far as which way Wisconsin will go. For Dan Kaufman, the driftless area was a good barometer for how rural Wisconsin felt about the Trump presidency and the Democrats. The dairy farmers who live and work there have been challenged by the consolidation of family-owned farms, and Dan says the frustration was one of the driving forces behind their support for Trump. There's three kind of main protagonists in my article. One is a guy named Jerry Volnick, who had voted for Obama twice. He voted for Trump, but not uh, with any kind of passion, or he wasn't really even paying close attention to politics, but he was discontent with the status quo. Like Jerry says at the beginning, um, you know, I'm working harder now than I did when I started full-time farming 25 years ago, and I'm making much less money. You know, Jerry's grandfather was able to survive milking a herd of 16 cows. Um, now, Jerry, as he calls it, is one of the biggest of the small guys, and he has 30, 330 cows. Um, it's a much different operation to survive in today's world. And the market forces are really encouraging consolidation, and there's no government policy to mitigate that. So they are really struggling, and it just keeps getting worse. Well, unlike in 2016, President Trump is running with a record. What has he done in the last three years that's changed farmers' lives? Do they perceive him as having made their lives better or worse? You know, I think that there is, um, like everything, it's a mixed bag. I think overall there's a lot of frustration um, because he's basically continued the agricultural policy that has existed for the past 50 years, 40 or 50 years. Um, his trade wars have worsened the condition of a lot of farmers, um, and uh, he has launched trade wars with China, Mexico, the European Union, and Canada, and that has, uh, you know, caused export markets to dry up and increasing pain. And he's somewhat cognizant that he needs these rural voters. He has offered um, substantial amounts of federal aid for farmers, but most of this aid is going to the largest farms, big factory corporate farms. So it's not really helping the small family farmer at all. And there's a sense of frustration and a sense of profound hopelessness in a lot of uh, rural Wisconsin, a sense that there's little that can or will be done 
to to help them. On a lot of Midwestern family farms, farmers will tell you their their own kids don't want farm life, or some of them will say they don't want it for their kids. And a lot of the work day to day is being done by Mexicans and Central Americans. Is immigration much of an issue in farm country in Wisconsin? I think it is. And, and the dairy industry is, is massively dependent on it. Dairy is one of the most labor-intensive forms of farming. And almost every farm I visited had many immigrant farm workers doing much of the work. Um, I think it's a huge issue and it's, it's a source of friction between um, sort of some of the elements in the Trump Republican Party wing and some of the more traditional elements. The, the, absolutely, the agricultural uh, needs of the United States depends on, you know, uh, foreign labor, Mexican immigrants particularly. And that is, that is an issue. And you're right to say that most of the younger people don't want it. I think they see that it's, it's almost essentially hopeless to keep the small uh, farms going. I mean, there is, you either have to get big or get out. There's so much pressure on that. So, and they see how hard their parents work. And in fact, Jerry uh, in the piece says, you know, that he will essentially be the last farmer for his family. He doesn't want his daughter's to farm because it is um, it is so it is so hard and he's he's barely as he says I'm basically paying myself living expenses now so he's not getting ahead in fact he's falling behind. But here you are describing this decline, this steady decline in the rural areas, and if you go to a state like Wisconsin, it's not like the urban areas are going great guns either. I mean, if you go to Kenosha or Racine or Sheboygan or Green Bay, not to mention Milwaukee, uh, those places have seen their factories close and their plants be bought and sold and then closed. And uh, it sounds like the Democrats will be beginning their virtual convention in a place that's um, that feels like the 21st century has a lot to answer for. I think you're right, right? And actually, I'm really glad you said that there's a lot of similarities between the deindustrialized towns and cities of the Rust Belt and some of these rural areas. I was shocked. I've done a lot of reporting in Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin as well, that southeastern corridor. And you're seeing some of the same dynamic. These people left behind, again, victims also of a lack of public investment and concern the American trade policies have really sent a lot of those jobs, um, you know, overseas. But uh, you're right. Most of southeastern Wisconsin and also the Fox River Valley, Green Bay, the paper companies are struggling. Um, you're seeing a lot of these problems and they're similar. And Trump actually linked in 2016 the fate of family farmers to steel workers and coal miners and so on. And I think... You know, he seized upon a decades-long uh, erosion by both parties in these kinds of jobs and the, the idea that you could make a decent living. And it definitely helped him uh, win, very narrowly, but win these uh, states, particularly Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. After Republicans took control of Wisconsin's state house and governor's mansion, the Democrats fought back and sought to win support by exploiting the difference between the president's rhetoric 
and his policies. And at a local level, it seemed to have worked. When you look at the elections since Trump has won, conservatives have won just one of nine statewide elections. Um, I think there's a growing frustration uh, with Donald Trump and Democrats have, I think, become more tactically skillful um, since, you know, since 2016 when um, Hillary Clinton didn't campaign there. That became a kind of national um, sort of emblem of how out of touch the Democrats were with some of what had been their core constituents. But now there's a recognition on the Democratic side that um, the battle for Wisconsin represents much more than just the state itself, but a kind of national proxy. And I think uh, they have been more organized uh, at turning out their voters. And most significantly, um, they defeated Scott Walker in 2018 narrowly. But a lot of that was also a shifting of the rural vote. And Tony Evers, the man who defeated him, did do significantly better in the Driftless area and campaigned heavily in rural areas and was able to win back some of these voters. One more recent example of Democratic statewide success came in the form of a state Supreme Court race this past April. The election itself was hotly debated as the Republican legislature overturned the Democratic governor's stay-at-home orders and forced Wisconsin to move ahead with in-person voting in the early weeks of the pandemic, while at the same time closing almost all polling places in Milwaukee. Conservatives might have felt moving forward with the election and in-person voting could help secure the seat for their preferred candidate, but the voters didn't see it that way. Ironically, it backfired, and I think it drew a lot of angry progressives to the polls. And Jill Karofsky, the um, Supreme Court justice that won, won 55% of the vote, and including in all over the state. So I think there's been some fatigue with this kind of hyper-extreme politics uh, that the Republicans have been pushing. And I think you're seeing that, uh, you know, play out. And you saw it play out in her victory. And it's particularly in the size and breadth of her victory, which occurred in areas all over the state, including some areas where Democrats traditionally struggle. Well, Dan, the convention that's not quite a convention will uh, soon gavel into order. Uh, You won't be heading to packed hospitality suites. You won't be glad-handing with state politicians. Uh, You won't be getting Uh, the free meals that reporters can often count on at convention time. Uh, Are you going to miss it? Well, that's uh, the free meals are a bit of a mixed blessing, Ray, I have to say. Uh, (laughs) But um, yeah, I'll miss Milwaukee. I love Milwaukee. I think it's an incredible city. And I was anxious to visit some old friends and and yes, to see this incredible, um, you know, pageantry and display of American politics in a city that I know really well. And I'm sad that uh, I'm sad for the city, all of its residents, because it would have been a great economic boon, you know, for the area. But um, but obviously we're living in unprecedented times and it was clearly not the right decision to hold any kind of uh, gathering like that now. But it'll be interesting to see in the months leading forward, you know, how Wisconsin is paid attention to by both of the major candidates and the parties. It could go either way. Uh, clearly. Um, But uh, at the moment, it seems like um, there's 
a sense that the Democrats, the ones that I talk to, seem to feel they have a bit of momentum, although they are not uh, by any means taking it for granted. Dan, great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, Ray. I really appreciate this conversation. It's wonderful. Dan Kaufman is a contributing writer at The New Yorker and author of The Fall of Wisconsin. That's the show. What Next is produced by Jason DeLeon, Mary Wilson, and Danielle Hewitt, with help from Daniel Avis. We're led by Alicia Montgomery and Allison Benedict. Find me on Twitter. I'm at Ray Suarez News. Thanks for listening. I'm Ray Suarez. <laughs>